from the beginning of time when God created the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, he created a master plan. And his master plan was to reconcile lost sinners back to himself. He wants to bring people who are far from him close to him. And he creates this master plan. And he rolls it out in phases or steps, if you will. And the first step, scriptures tell us, is that he wants to teach us about our sin. He wants us to see how sinful we really are and, and how um, many sins we have stacked up against us. Um, Paul tells us that um, the law was a tutor to show us how sinful we really are. So the first stage was to bring the law and teach us about our sin. The second stage was to teach us how filthy and ugly that sin was and how much work it took to cover over it. And so he creates this um, sacrificial system throughout the Old Testament where the Levites and the priests had to slaughter animals in order to cover over sin. And as the Israelites saw that, they were beginning to see foreshadows and pictures of God's master plan. The third phase is our favorite. The Bible says that at just the right time or in the fullness of time or right at the right season, God revealed his master plan. And Paul says, it is the wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians and the wisdom of God is Christ crucified. So tonight, as we read this passage in Isaiah 53, we will see the wisdom of God. And what I want to ask is, why is this the wisdom of God? Let me read it for you. It's Isaiah 53, um, verses 4 through 6. By the way, this is the third stanza of this servant song that we've been studying for the past few weeks. And if you'll remember from the first week, it is the climax. This is the main event of the whole song. If you guys are musicians, so there's, there's five verses, one, two, three, four, there's five verses in this song. This is the third verse and it's the climax. It pulls it all together. I'll read it. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. So here's why tonight is... I think my favorite message from this series is that we get to look at the main event. I mean, this is, this, is the, this is the verses that we all know when we think of Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. But when we read this verse, we read it from the other side of the cross, right? So we're here. Isaiah 53 is over there. And when we read Isaiah 53, we see Jesus. Jesus is on the cross, wounded for our transgressions. But what I want to do tonight is take a trip in time. Let's go backwards on the other side of Isaiah 53, way over here in Leviticus, and see what Leviticus teaches us about Isaiah 53 verses 4 through 6. Because there's a lot of parallels in that, that second stage or second phase of God's master plan of this sacrificial system. Um, so today I want to talk about the Day of Atonement. We might call it Yom Kippur. 
Yom Kippur um, in Hebrew literally means Yom, the day of Kippur or Kephar. The root word is of covering. So it's not a day of removing your sin. It's a day of covering over your sin temporarily. It was one day a year where God allowed the high priest to make a covering for all of Israel's sin. We call it the day of atonement. And the word atonement literally means at one meant. At one meant. If you just stare at the word long enough, you'll know what it means. It means to be at one with God. So God's going to make a special reservation for us and our sinfulness by allowing the high priest to cover over our sin. And now no longer are we separated from God, but we can have at one meant with him. We can be at one with God. See, it's all part of God's master plan that we would have oneness with him. And so on this day, lots of things are happening and all of those things should show us pictures, types, metaphors of Jesus Christ. I think that if we were then and we were watching this system, when we finally met Jesus, we would say, oh, it all makes sense. So I want to talk about the Day of Atonement. Now, the Day of Atonement is found in Leviticus chapter 16. I want to read just verse um, chapter 23. It talks a little bit about the Day of Atonement. It says, it's a time of holy convocation. You shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord, and you will not do any work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement. To make atonement for you before the Lord your God, for whoever is not afflicted on that day will be cut off from his people. So on this one day of the year, no one ate, no one worked, no one played video games, no one watched hockey. Everyone just sat outside the tent, afflicted their soul, prayed and fasted, and was waiting for the Lord to atone for a year's worth of sin. And so tonight I want to focus on some things about this event. I'm not going to read Leviticus chapter 16, because honestly, that would be boring, right? If you just look at it, it's like, you know, you take a bull and a burnt offering and a ram for a, all kinds of offerings, but instead, I just want to tell the story of what happens on that day. It's, we're a story, people, so I'm just going to story it for you, if you will. And what I want to do is create three points from this message. And the first is I want to look at the high priest and how the high priest is a perfect picture of our Lord Jesus. And then secondly, I want to look at these two goats. There are two goats in this story, and both of them portray a specific picture of what Christ does on the cross. It's fascinating. So we're going to look at the high priest and then goat one and then go two, and then we're going to go home, okay? So first, let's talk about the high priest. There are a couple things about the high priest that we see in the Day of Atonement. The first is that the high priest has to do all of the work of the Day of Atonement alone. Every other day of the year, now, the, the, the Levites were perpetually killing animals all year round to atone for sins and different things that happened in the camp. And most of the time, or I would even say all of the time, the people who did that killing or who took care of the candles or who took care of the water basin was the Levites. It was, I guess you could say, the high priest staff. They took care of everything. But on the Day of Atonement, they weren't allowed to do anything. Only the high priest was allowed to do anything. He had to do it all by himself. Now, if I could paint a picture, for just in case you're not um, aware, on that day, Israelites had just left Egypt, and they were wandering around in the wilderness for a long time, and God had told them to build a tabernacle, which was a temple that was a tent. So they made it out of animal skin, and they would roll it up, 
kind of like a church plant, and they would move, <laughs> and they would just go around, and then they would set it up when it was time to worship. And so the tent, first of all, had a, a cloth fence or an animal skin fence that went all the way around. And then within that rectangle fence, there was a big rectangle tent, and inside that tent would be some candlesticks and some incense. Outside of the tent would be a big basin to wash, and then there would be a big altar to slaughter animals. And then you have got your, your, you know, your main tent, the tabernacle, we would call that. And then within the tabernacle is a smaller tent, and we'd call that the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant, and on top of the Ark of the Covenant is a lid or the mercy seat. And God would show up and live in the Holy of Holies. So no one was ever allowed inside this place except for on this one day. Can you imagine this one day where, if you, just imagine, you're a high priest and you wake up at 6 a.m. on um, September 14th, which is Yom Kippur this year, by the way. Oh, gosh. Today I got to go into the Holy of Holies. That would be a, a very intimidating thing. And the, and the high priest goes in there and makes atonement for their sins. So the first thing that we see is that the high priest does all of this by himself. And if you research Leviticus 16, he has to kill 15 animals throughout the day. And one of those animals is a bull. Can you imagine killing a bull by yourself? I just don't know how he did that. I mean, think about it. There's a bull and there's you. <laughs> And you've got a knife. And that bull knows what you're going to do with that knife. And you know that he knows that you know what you're going to do with that knife. How do you kill a bull? So it's inappropriate for us to think of these high priests as these effeminate, mamby-pamby kind of, you know, bookworms. These are men who kill bulls with a knife and rams and goats and sheep and lambs. I mean, they're, they're bloody. They're, they're men. He has to kill all of these animals he has to make atonement for himself. He has to bathe between all of the killing. He has to go into the Holy of Holies, and he has to do it all alone. No one can help him. And of course, this is just like Jesus, because Jesus does it all, and he does it all alone. Nobody helps Jesus. Peter wasn't there holding him up, right? Mark wasn't there saying, you can do it, brother. We're, we've got your back. No one was helping Jesus. In fact, Isaiah 64 tells us, that um, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. The Bible says that we are saved by faith through grace, and this is not of any work of our own, but it's a free gift of God so that we can't boast. There's nothing that we do. There's nothing that anyone does. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. He's the great high priest. Secondly, we learn that he has to be cleansed. And the high priest, if you read through Leviticus 16, he has to go through these ceremonial washings and he has to sacrifice a bull and a ram for himself before he can go into the Holy of Holies in order to make the sacrifice for Israel. So the bull and the ram is for his own sin. The high priest is a sinner. And he sacrifices these things and then he has to bathe himself between all of those sacrifices. And, and it's interesting, what he has to do is bathe himself with the ceremonial washing and then go kill an animal and then go back in and bathe himself again and then go kill another animal. And if you read like the ancient literature, I read a commentary once that said, because they were so afraid of getting killed or fried when they'd go into the Holy of Holies, if God said, bathe yourself before you kill the bull, he would go in and bathe himself 10 times. So he'd bathe himself, dry off, get out, 
I'm going to go back and do it again and do it 10 times, very ceremonially, very religiously to make sure that he's clean. And then he would go in and offer these sacrifices to God to cleanse himself. And of course, you can see how this is a parallel to Christ, right? He's clean. He's spotless. He's holy. He doesn't need to go through all these rituals to clean himself because he has no sin. And the Bible says he had no need in Hebrews like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for the sins of his people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus is spotless. He's holy. He doesn't need to offer up anything for himself. He can just offer up himself for us. And then the last thing, or not the last thing, but but, but the third thing we see about the high priest is that he must be humbled. Every other day of the year, the high priest wears that robe that you saw on the screen earlier. Um, a beautiful robe, many colors. He would wear a diadem, a crown on his head. Um, on his breastplate would be nine stones, umen and thumen and all kinds of you know, sapphires, beautiful stuff. He'd have a beautiful purple sash. And we're told that the bottom of his robe has golden tassels and bells and trinkets so that you would hear him coming as he's walking through the camp. I can't help but imagine that as this high priest is walking through the camp with all his pomp and circumstance, he probably would look a lot like a modern day pope. But on this particular day, if you read Leviticus chapter 16, God says, you shall not wear that. You will only wear linen. In fact, he has to wear linen underwear and then a linen tunic on top of that, and then a linen sash to cover it. So he's got to be humbled. He's got to be just a normal guy, and he's got to be very humbled. And of course, you can see how this relates to Christ. Christ was humbled. He took on flesh. He humbled himself to become a baby. I love what Spurgeon says. He says, upon his brow, there was no diadem, save the crown of thorns. And around him was cast no purple robe, save that which he wore for a time of mockery. On his head was no scepter, save the reed which they thrust in cruel contempt. He had no sandals of gold, neither was he dressed as a king. He had none of those splendors about him which should make him mighty and distinguished among men. He came out in his simple body. I, Spurgeon says, in his naked body. For they stripped off even his common robe and made him hang before God's universe naked in his shame. It doesn't get any humbler than that. Our Lord went way humble to do this work for us. And so we have these things about the high priest. He does it alone. He must be cleansed first, and he's humbled. And Jesus does it all alone. He's cleansed, and he's humbled. The rest of the Day of Atonement is all about these goats. I don't know about you, but I don't really like goats. And so it's kind of weird to see these goats but there's two goats that is central to this day of atonement. And real quickly, about these goats, God says it must be a young goat, young healthy goat. It must be from the camp, meaning it's not a goat that the Levites raised, you know, in their organic pastures. <laughs> it's a goat that the regular people raised. And it must be chosen from God, by God. It must be chosen by casting of lots. And again, just like Christ, Christ was a young goat healthy male, right? Oh, I forgot to mention the goats were male. He died the prime of his life, 33 years old. Jesus was also taken from among the camp. He wasn't, you know, from the Levite stock, if you will. He was a Jewish carpenter. In fact, he was a Jew, a Jew, and the Jews are the ones who tried him illegally and brought him to Pilate to kill him. So the Jews actually said, here's our goat. 
and brought him up. It's fascinating. Not necessarily that I want to blame the Jews, but it's a fulfillment of prophecy. He was from his own people. And then thirdly, of course, he was chosen from God. God chose him from the beginning of time. At the right time, Christ was revealed. So there's two goats, and the first goat is a sacrifice goat. God says, I want you to choose a goat, and he shall be a sacrifice, which means he's going to die. And then I want you to choose another goat, and he will be a scapegoat. So he's not going to die. He's going to escape. And these are interesting things. In fact, theologically, um, the, the sacrifice we would call our propitiation and the scapegoat we would call our expiation. And when I started doing church planting, I promised I would not use theological jargon. So that's why I created this little paper here that gives you a definition of those two words. And I'm going to unpack those two words because I think they're important. I don't really think they're Christian jargon. <laughs> you know, I mean, we don't want to use those words anymore, really. So I want to talk about the, the, the sacrifice goat or a propitiation and then the scapegoat or our expiation. And I just think these things are fascinating. So the first is the sacrifice or Christ, our propitiation. What is propitiation. Here's the American Heritage Dictionary of Propitiation. It's an English word, actually. Raise your hand if you heard the word in the past six months. Okay, you have. <laughs> but, but, but we don't use this word anymore, but it used to be used a lot within legal circles. It was a legal term. Um, in, in, the, in the dictionary, the definition of propitiation is something that appeases or conciliates an offended power, especially a sacrificial offering to a god. So, but, but on a legal note, it's something that appeases or conciliates an offended power. So you messed up. Your payment for messing up is that, this thing, whatever it is. Let's call it blood. You must, you must shed blood. That blood is called a propitiation. It conciliates, it appeases the cost of your sin. Um, one commentator says this, there's an eternal, unchangeable requirement in the holiness and justice of God that sin be paid for. And I just want to be honest, this word is in the New Testament two times, but most modern translations don't translate it propitiation anymore. Maybe they do it because you read the word and you're like, uh-huh. <laughs> but maybe they do it because they don't like what it means. Believe it or not, a lot of ink has been spilt over that. And a lot of commentators argue about it because here's what it means. It means that our God is a God who smokes. He's on fire. The Bible says he's a consuming fire. He has wrath and anger. You've seen Pulp Fiction, right? And the anger of the Lord shall strike me down with fury and vengeance. He's an angry God. Why? Because of sin. That's what he's been teaching us about the law and about the sacrificial system. And in order for God to be just, he must punish sin. But what about grace? Well, that's a different story. He, he, he provides a way. But in order for him to be just, sin has to be paid for. If sin's not paid for, then he's not just, he's unjust. And I can give you examples, right? If a drunk driver runs over your child, you want justice in some way. If God doesn't bring justice or if the legal courts don't bring justice in that situation, you'll say, this is unjust and I'm mad. If God doesn't bring punishment, then he's just a pushover. I'll just let it slide. Why? Because I love you. Justice must be brought. And so the wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. And the Bible also says that the only way to pay for sin is through blood. 
But God's master plan was to provide his son to be that blood, and that is the propitiation. So here's what the high priest does with this first goat. He cuts its throat, and he fills a bowl with its blood. And this is after he's already made the sacrifices for himself and bathed himself several times. And then he takes that bowl of blood, and he goes into the Holy of Holies. I can't even imagine this. Before he gets into the Holy of Holies, he grabs a big old handful of incense and he throws it on the fire just inside. There's a big curtain that made out of leather that separates him from God. And he just throws this incense and it creates this big cloud of smoke. This is so the high priest does not see God and then die. And when he gets in there, he's got this big bowl of goat blood. And he puts his finger in it, Leviticus says, and he sprinkles it on the mercy seat. I can see him trembling. And I imagine he's praying, oh, Lord, please forgive us of our sins. And he sprinkles the blood on there seven times, which is the number of completion, saying, please forgive us of all of our sins. And if you know the story of the Old Testament, right, he could die at this moment. And if he does, they'll have to drag him out with the rope. But he's sprinkling seven times in order to forgive us of our sins. And this is like Jesus. His blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat. Uh, Hebrews tells us that if he goes in and offers this blood, well, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So Jesus became a high priest in order to go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood seven times. But it was his blood, not the first goat. Romans tells us God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine master plan, if you will, he had passed over former sins. And so what I want to do is discuss something. Let's discuss this issue of, of, of propitiation. What is propitiation? I've defined it for you a couple of times. There's a cheat sheet in front of you if you forgot. What is propitiation and what does it teach you about sin? What does it teach you about God? And what does it teach you about Christ? So we're going to take about three minutes and discuss this as a table, and then afterwards we're going to share. So the second goat is the goat of expiation. The first goat dies, you cut his head off, you drain his blood, and that is the sin, that cut, you know, the blood that pays for your sin, covers over your sin. The second goat is this goat that's kind of mysterious. It's called the scapegoat. It gets to escape with our sin. And we would call that our expiation. The definition of expiation is to remove the penalty of sin that the law exacts on the sinner to cancel the debt. The difference between propitiation and expiation is that propitiation covers over the sin and is the payment for the sin and conciliates the sin. The wages of sin is death. Here's death. It's paid for. But expiation removes it completely, removes the debt, removes the guilt. It's gone. So you don't have to say, I was guilty, but he paid for it. They say, I wasn't even guilty. Isn't that amazing that God would provide even that for us? We don't deserve the first, and we don't deserve the latter, but we get both. So here's what the high priest has to do with the scapegoat. The scapegoat comes in. Remember, no one's allowed in the, in the fence, in the tent, or anything. He's got this goat within the fence, and he lays his hands upon the head of the goat. And he begins to confess over the head of this goat the sins of all the Israelites. Now, I don't know how long this takes. <laughs> I can imagine. Lord God, please forgive Raul. Last week, we know, we all know what he did. Raul wasn't invented yet. Raul wasn't invented yet? The internet wasn't invented. Oh, right. So he's confessing all the sins of Israel on top of this goat. That's got to be exhausting. 
And then the Bible says, and then when he is done with that, I imagine he has a rope. It's led to a fit man who is waiting outside of the tent. And I imagine he's like the Olympian of the group. And they hand that goat to him. And then he is waiting in readiness, Leviticus says. He grabs that goat and he runs as fast as he can outside of the camp. And he's running. What's a good running song? Yeah, he's running with this goat. And the Israel is all just watching and he's running with the goat and he gets about as far as he can go so that Israel can still see him. And he's on top of the hill with the goat and then he takes the leash off the goat, whacks it on the rear and the goat runs even further away. And this fit man is waiting and he's watching the goat. It goes up the hill, goes down the mountain, it goes off into the wilderness until he can't see it anymore. And then he turns to Israel and he raises his hand and said, it's gone. And then Israel all clap and cheer and throw a party. Our sin is out of here. It's gone. That's amazing. And they're rejoicing. In the same way, Christ was murdered upon that tree outside of the camp, taking with him all of our sin and removing it completely, not just paying for it, but disappearing it, (laughs) removing it completely. So when we read Isaiah 53 about his wounds healing us and the chastisement laying upon him, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. First Corinthians says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is good news. So one last question. And sometimes I ask the same question, but a little differently because we didn't really get to it the first time. You know what I'm saying? We thought about it. We talked about it a little bit, but we didn't really, we just kind of scratched the surface. We broke the ice. Now let's really get in there. What is expiation? How is that different from propitiation? And what does it teach you about sin? What does it teach you about God? And what does it teach you about Jesus? So, okay, so now we can go back. Let's come back in time. Okay, let's, let's, I'm glad, you know, let's get away from this goat system because I don't understand it. We don't understand it. We live so far removed from sacrifice. Most of us can't even stand the sight of blood. Now, you may see it all the time on TV, on CSI or whatever, but if you had to see it in real life, it would make you throw up, make you gag. It, you know, it's gross. But our religion, our faith is wrapped up in blood. Jesus even tells us to drink his blood. Even though he's speaking hyperbolically about the wine, it's still very morbid and very weird. And so the question becomes, the question that I ask and the question that the world is asking is, why is this the master plan of God? Why is the master plan of your God to murder his son upon a cross so that you can continue to live in sin? Like all other Christians that I know, hypocrites. And, and Paul says it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's the wisdom of God. And God's wisdom is wiser than the, God's foolishness is wiser than the wisdom of man, Paul says there. Do you ever wonder that? Why is this the master plan of God? It doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, I don't know the answer. So here's what I do know, is that when Jesus was on the cross, he is the sacrifice. He is the scapegoat. He is the sin eater. He's taking it all on himself, eating it and making it canceled, getting rid of it. And it's enough. His blood is enough. He sprinkles it on the mercy seat and God says, I'm appeased. I'm conciliated forever. Wow. 
And while Jesus was on the cross, he screamed out in a loud voice and he says, Father, why? Why are you forsaken me? And then he breathed his last, Mark tells us. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And I think this is interesting. And when the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man is the son of God. Here's a Greek who doesn't even understand the sacrificial system, sees it happening in front of him and says, I, wow. But here's the cool thing. The veil that used to be in the tabernacle that they moved around, in Jesus's time, they had built a temple right there in Jerusalem, and that very veil was still there, which would separate the Holy of Holies from all the other people. And all the high priests would still go in there. In fact, we saw Simon who was going in there just when Jesus was born. When Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? And breathed his last, at that moment, Mark tells us, that veil was ripped in two. And you may have heard this before, but it's very hard to rip those veils. They were very, very strong leather. That veil was ripped in two, giving us complete access. We have at one minute with God. We've been atoned for. We have Reconciliation with God, the master plan has been completed. And that is glorious news. It's good news. And so if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian or you've not heard that good news or maybe not heard it in that way, I just want to tell you that God has always loved you and always had a plan to reconcile you or to draw you closer to him. He wants a relationship. He created you for a relationship. And the way he got but the way he, he gets your relationship is by making access, by ripping that veil in two, by providing the propitiation, and by completely forgetting your sin, by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's what Christians believe. Jesus paid it all and died for my sin so that I can have peace with God, so I can have oneness with God. 